Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. North Wales' number one spare room based one person true crime podcast that seeks out the cases that are often unfamiliar, unbelievable, long forgotten or those that deserve a deep dive into from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow is lying right at my feet as ever. And you guys are here listening in, making the show complete, where it's as fabulous as it always is having you joining me here once again, which I thank you for doing so. And I do hope that as you do, then you and yours are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. Now you join me at massively busy times as ever here with the show, hence the episode being a couple of days later than planned. But of course, I'm never too busy to pass on my usual thanks. Firstly, to those who've gotten in touch to give me your thoughts and feedback concerning the opening episode of the Thriller arc, Two Bodies with One Brain. Now I gather that many of you are already familiar with the case from the events that were described in the episode, some even from the title of it, and if you are, then I'm sure that you can appreciate just how complex a tale this one is. It's one that you can't just cover in a single, or even a two-part episode I don't think. Because if you did, then to do them proper justice, both episodes would end up being longer than bloody Celine Dion's neck. So that's why I'm doing it in as many parts as I can. Cheers also to my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with a big shout going out this time around to Rosie Lee, Doug Armistead and Pegleg7855. Thank you all so much, it's so very kind of you to support the show, it really does mean the world. Now if you want to join these kind folks and become a Patreon supporter yourselves, then you're more likely to find a friendly seagull than get confused in doing so. It's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, it's got the same show logo and all that, or you can just use the ever clickable link that will take you right to it, and that's always in the episode show notes each and every time. Quicker than Columbo identifies the killer, you can be in there and you can be settling down to hear the stories behind titles such as The Rotten Rose of Devon, New Year's Evil, The Bravo Two Heroes, or the latest one, An Offering to the Angels, to name just a few of the full series of unreleased bonus episodes that there are for supporters. Or you can even be waiting on some of the wild and wonderful bits of show swag that being a supporter can be winging their way to you. It's completely up to you guys. So before we crack on then, because I'm anxious to get going with the tale, I have a short word from the sponsors of the show, Wondery. One nefarious doctor, a hit podcast, and 15 million listeners later, Dr. Death is still making waves all over the world. Dr. Death is the true story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, a sociopath with a scalpel who left a trail of bodies behind him. Before he was stopped, 33 patients would become paralysed or die under his care. And now, the phenomenon of Dr. Death is being reimagined in a new streaming series starring Alec Baldwin, Anna Sophia Robb, Joshua Jackson and Christian Slater exclusively on Peacock. Experience three brand new bonus episodes of the Dr. Death podcast where the cast interviews the real-life characters they portray in the streaming series. Golden Globe Award winner Christian Slater sits down with Dr. Kirby, the doctor who finally took Dunch down. Anna Sophia Robb talks to Michelle Shugart, the district attorney who put him behind bars. 
and Dr. Death host and reporter Laura Bale speaks with the full cast about how making the show changed their perspectives on institutions and the medical system. To listen to these new bonus episodes, follow Dr. Death on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. So, not too much waffling shite this time around. Like Vanilla Ice investigating Shergar, I want to get right down to it. And by the way, what an absolute shamble of bollocks that sounds indeed, doesn't it? Vanilla Ice investigating Shergar. You couldn't make it up, you really couldn't. The episode this time around then brings part two of the thriller arc, and I've ultimately decided that the arc is going to be slightly longer than I'd anticipated. I mean, we shall still have to see if it tops Maniac, of course, but when you cover complex cases such as these, and especially ones where the lives of so many involved are forever affected, then you can't help feel a certain sense of responsibility to do the very best that you can and get everybody's story out there in as much detail as is possible. Well, I certainly do anyway. So with that in mind, I've decided to separate each of the several features of note and acts that make up the overall entire tale into an episode of its own, as by doing so makes it not only a bit more workable for me really, plus there's also a chance by doing it like that to bring a bit more media that's relevant to the tale into it as well, perhaps a couple of sound bites or something. I know it's not something I normally do, that is, but as it's my time to cover this, and there's so much to this case, there really is, I think sometimes it's good to hear relevant things from those concerned. It may bring things home a bit more. If you haven't yet heard it, then I advise you go back and begin there to begin the context of this episode properly. But if you have, just a short recap then. In the opening episode of Thriller, I introduce you to two individuals we shall continue for the time being at least, to refer to as taller and shorter, a pair of depraved individuals who, from at least the middle of 1982, began to carry out an appalling catalogue of sex crimes across the North London area, more often than not in the near vicinity of a railway station. Now that's as subtle as a brick-to-the-mush hint as to what the case is better known as there. Swiftly becoming polished at the horrific acts, the two men would work in such tandem, raping usually lone women with such horrific proficiency that one of their victims described them as two bodies with one brain. Now the attacks had already become horrifyingly frequent in number when in 1984 at least one of the pair, the shorter one, also started raping women on his own. Whether it was the frequency of the attacks bringing with them more chance of identification from one of the victims, or whether he'd taken less care when raping Solo, who knows for sure. But following a very close call in December 1985, when the shorter one was actually asked to take part in an identification parade that was being held in connection with a rape that he'd committed, although he wasn't identified by his victim, the thinking very much by that time was we're going to be identified at some point. So, with that mindset, there was but one horrific yet logical step, making sure nobody could identify them. For stopping was out of the question, it was too much of a thrill for them to even consider. And it was certainly a step that one of the pair, at least, was itching to take. So with just two days left of 1985, they found a new depth of depravity to sink to, 
and crossed the line from being serial rapists to killers. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving crimes of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the second part of the thriller arc for an episode I've simply entitled Alison's Story. Alison Jane Day had been born on the 23rd of May 1966 at Hackney Hospital to an unknown mother, but had been adopted by Kenneth and Barbara Day when she was just a few months old. She'd had a happy enough childhood, attending Gaines School in Upminster's Brackenridge Road, where she was well liked, making friends easily due to her good nature, and as a result was highly thought of as a popular and reliable girl. By the time she was of school leaving age in 1982, she was helping out as a second and assistant sixer for the local brownie pack at St Lawrence's Church in Upminster that she herself had once been part of, and later that same year, Alison got herself both a job working as a solicitor's clerk for a firm in Hornchurch, just two miles away from her home, and a boyfriend from nearby Rush Green, 19-year-old Paul Tidyman, whom she'd known since starting secondary school. Over the next year, the couple became closer, they fell deeply in love, and by 1983, Paul had decided that this was the girl he wanted to spend his life with, and had proposed to Alison. Feeling the same way about him, she'd at once accepted his proposal, although the level-headed couple were not prepared to rush headlong into a whirlwind marriage, instead planning to set a date for their wedding at some time in the not-too-distant future, when they were a bit more financially stable. So life was pretty good for Alison. She had a good loving family and a home where she was happy. She had many friends, a fiancé who she loved dearly and who loved her back and a job that she enjoyed and was well thought of at as a conscientious worker. And it went on like this until December 1985. The then 19-year-old Alison had that year just spent a pleasant Christmas with her family and Paul, and still had some days of her Christmas and New Year break to enjoy before starting back to work in the new year of 1986. That Christmas break of 1985 was proving to be a longer one than usual, as Christmas Day had fallen midweek on a Wednesday that year, and most business premises were due to be closed for a full week owing to both the bank holidays that were afforded for the festive period and the weekend that fell between them. The printing firm that Alison's fiancé Paul worked for, however, Fairway Graphics in the East London neighbourhood of Hackney Wick, was a premises that was open over the Christmas period, and on the Sunday following Christmas, the 29th, Paul had been working. Now owing to problems with the printing equipment that day, orders had fallen behind, and Paul was asked to stay behind and work overtime to both repair the equipment and to catch up with the orders. Now he'd arranged to see Alison after work that evening, and so that afternoon telephoned her at home to say that he had to work late that evening, but to also suggest to her did she wish to come and keep him company at Fairway Graphics. Alison had agreed to do this, and on Paul's suggestion, had agreed to set off from home sometime between 5.30 and 6pm, allowing for the hour of travelling that it would be, due to the various sources of public transport that she would have to take to get to him. 
after writing down a series of verbally given directions to his workplace, for she'd never been there before. Alison told him that she would see him later and hung up, tearing the sheet off the notepad and putting it into the pocket of her brown sheepskin coat. That telephone call was the last time Paul Tidyman was ever to speak to his fiancée. So sure enough, after enjoying her Sunday dinner with her folks, and tapping her mum up to borrow a couple of quid for her various fares on the transport she'd need to take to get to Paul there, a bit later than agreed, just after 6.15pm, Alison, dressed in a red and green tartan shirt and jeans, pink and white leather shoes and a thick brown sheepskin three-quarter length jacket, set off from the Norfolk Road home that she shared with her parents to begin the journey of some 16 miles to Hackney Wick. That evening of Sunday the 29th of December was one of the coldest nights of the year. Even by early evening it was a degree below freezing, and Alison walked briskly the 300 yards towards Upminster Bridge Station needing first to catch a bus from the stop outside there. Because there was no connecting train from here, Alison had to take a bus from here first a few miles away to Romford, then catch a train from there to Stratford, and then exchange lines from here to take a North London line train one stop further on, which would land her at Hackney Wick Station. Alison encountered some friends of hers during her walk to the bus stop, and they remained talking with her until her bus which was either a single-decker 244 or 248 service vehicle, arrived at her stop. They watched her get on and waved to her, each turning away to continue their journey as the bus drove off. Not realising that they'd just waved a final farewell to their friend. Now the journey to Stratford at that time of the evening, with the roads being fairly quiet due to the festive period, should have taken some 20 minutes, meaning Alison would have arrived there shortly before 7pm. A ticket collector on duty that evening at Stratford Station, Rose Lee, indeed remembered a girl strongly matching Alison's description asking for information about which platform to take for the train to Hackney Wick, and it being at about 7pm. Rose vividly remembered this because the girl had remarked to her just how cold it was that evening, and looked visibly chilled to the bone. As we said, the timing of this would have fitted perfectly with the estimated timings of Alison's journey to that point, and Rose watched as the girl, who it was later established to be Alison, hunched her shoulders to block out the cold, and made her way to the platform that would take her a stop further on to a destination at Hackney Wick. This was ultimately to be the last confirmed sighting of Alison Day alive by anyone except her killer. Back then in 1985, Hackney Wick Station was largely in the middle of a bleak looking landscape. It was a place filled largely with undeveloped areas, industrial premises and wasteland, punctuated with the River Lee. It's reportedly a markedly different place today, and as I couldn't just nip down to the smoke myself to get the feel of it and try to describe it here for the episode, I instead did the next best thing and called on a friend of the show that could do that. I've worked with her several times before, and when I got in touch to ask, Jess Carter, the host of the Outlines podcast, kindly agreed to head down there and do some on-site research for the episodes. 
So for her to give the spin on the place that only Jess Carter can, I hand it over to her. The area around the station where Alison alighted the train has recently been modernised and bears little resemblance to how it would have looked in the 1980s. With the regeneration of Stratford following the London Olympics in 2012, Hackney Wick has undergone a period of intense gentrification. Walking around the area now, it's striking to see the parts where the old and the new clash. Opposite the station building stands a modern cafe and a community art collective, but the remnants of what was once a run-down but creative industrial and artistic community are becoming few and far between. Surrounding the station stands hoardings and derelict buildings covered in graffiti. For an area in which Banksy reportedly once had a studio, this seems fitting but carries a certain pathos. Many artists are currently being forced out of the area by the rise in studio prices. In the location where Alison's boyfriend worked on Berkshire Road, there is no longer any sign of the Fairway Graphics or Atlas Works building, as it was also known. It was torn down in the early 1990s, and they are currently in the process of ripping down what remains of the surrounding warehouses and erecting flats. The walk that Alison would have had to take between the station and fairway graphics is no more than five minutes, but it would have been dark and imposing for a 19-year-old woman. It was filled with old industrial buildings, the vast majority of which were printers and other factories. Hackney Wick used to be referred to as Printer's Paradise because of the high concentration of print-related businesses. The canal runs the length of the area, but almost every turning off of Wallace or Berkshire Road leads there. The risk to a woman walking alone at night in the area would have been relatively high. In the book The Crisis of London, Jill Valentine writes that in a 1984 survey of 1,236 women in the London area, at some point in their lives, 83% of them had been verbally assaulted, 76% physically grabbed, and 72% followed or flashed at. In a survey conducted at around the same time by the GLC Women's Committee, it was discovered that only 15% of the 905 women questioned felt safe walking alone at night. Down by the canal, I find myself staring at the place where Alison's body was pulled from the water. A path runs alongside the waterway, and on the bank stands what remains of the old factories, red and yellow brick crumbling or in the process of being destroyed. Next to them are the more modern buildings, uninspiring architecture that would set you back somewhere in the region of 400,000 for a flat. Canal boats line the sides of the water, and the path is busy with cyclists and walkers. It would be picturesque if it wasn't for the thick layer of scum which sits static on the surface of the water. It's difficult to be able to imagine how the area looked in 1985, when the pathways were still scrubland and rough concrete slabs. So instead, I picture it at night, the only light being that from the nearby buildings. 
the water would appear dark and oily, and the sounds of footsteps on the bridges would echo through the darkness. In a recent survey, published on london.gov.uk, 23% of the women asked said that they did not feel safe in London at night. During the day, it might be tough to imagine the body of a woman being pulled from the canal, but in the darkness, the risks still seem all too real. Now, when Alison would have alighted from the train here at Hackney Wick, she was only a minute or two walk from Berkshire Road, which was the location of Fairway Graphics. But not knowing the area and relying on written directions that she had to find her bearings from in an alien place to her, would likely have wandered about for a bit, trying to find the relevant roads Paul had described, and then Fairway Graphics. But she was never to make it as far as even considering being really lost. Because that night, as the opening lines of the song that this entire story arc takes its name from, there truly was something evil lurking in the dark. By the time it was approaching 8.30pm, a worried Paul Tillman had long since left Fairway Graphics to look around the area for Alison, who hadn't arrived, but of course, finding nothing. After his mother had joined him in his fruitless search, Paul contacted Alison's parents to see whether for some reason she'd merely stayed home instead of coming to see him, thus setting them off worrying when they realised that she'd not arrived at her planned destination. By 9.15pm, Kenneth Day had even contacted British Rail to see if there were any delays or had been any accidents on the line, but when he was told that there weren't, immediately contacted police to report Alison as a missing person. By the following morning, an inquiry and incident room had been set up at Romford Police Station, codenamed Operation Lee, and a full-scale search for the missing woman now got underway. Alongside the standard door-to-door inquiries in both the Hackney Wick and Upminster areas, an aerial search was made and the underwater search team scoured the River Lee in part, but with no success. Alison's disappearance was mentioned in the local presses, and before long, the national newspapers had also taken up the story, issuing full descriptions of the missing woman and appealing for information about her disappearance. They described Alison as, I quote, 5 feet 7 inches tall, of medium to slim build, with a fair complexion and shoulder-length blonde hair. She was wearing a three-quarter length suede jacket, jeans, pink and white flat shoes, a gold necklace with her name on it, and another with a horn of plenty emblem. Now unofficially, police feared the worst from the off here. This wasn't a girl prone to running away, her parents and boyfriend were adamant to that, and the distress that each felt was all too apparent. Everything about the disappearance made it seem likely that Alison had come to some harm. But where? For at that point, it couldn't even be established that Alison had even made it as far as Hackney Wick on her journey. It was a 16-mile trip, as we've said, involving a number of changes of transport, and there were multiple lines and journey options that she could have taken to get to Stratford, though the route that I described before is the most logical one and you always take the easiest, more direct route anywhere after all, don't you? So working backwards from Hackneywick Station, 
who intended destination, it was here that Rose Lee, the ticket collector at Stratford, gave details of her sighting and identified Alison as being the girl that she'd spoken to and directed to the platform to take her on to Hackney Wick. As Rose had made a statement the following day, so the sighting was fresh in her mind, it seemed likely that Alison had indeed made it to a destination as it was only one stop onwards. Officers armed with appeal posters now made inquiries at some 25 different stations and regular bus services between Alison's home and Hackney Wick, all on a possible route via Stratford, in an attempt to establish anyone who had seen her, or perhaps someone following her, and a police roadblock was set up at both Upminster and Hackney Wick stations one week after her disappearance, where some 740 motorists were stopped and questioned, to see if any potential witnesses could be found. In the days following the launch of the investigation, police appeals did bring one piece of information that seemed significant. A Hackney minicab company had that Sunday evening received a telephone call at 7.13pm from a woman who sounded distressed, the dispatcher was later to recall, and who requested a taxi from Hackney Wick Station to take her into Hackney. When the dispatcher had told her that there would be a delay in getting one there, there always is for cabs over the Christmas period after all, isn't there? The caller had disconnected the call, either hanging up or running out of money. Had this been Alison? By this time also, the strain was proper showing on Alison's family and her fiancé. As we've said many times here on the show beforehand, which is standard in such a case. The initial person of interest in such an inquiry is always a family member or a partner, but Paul Tidyman had by that time been eliminated from the inquiry, ruled out of having any possible culpability in his fiancée's disappearance. Indeed, the grief and upset he felt were clearly shown when he spoke to the Daily Mail newspaper, saying, She means more to me than anything else. I love her very much and I desperately want her to come back. Alison's father, Kenneth, meanwhile, told the London Evening Standard newspaper, If anybody knows where Alison is, they should tell the police straight away. Obviously, if it's somebody who's harmed her, then they're not going to do that. I can see no reason why she should have gone away. She's never left home before. She was very happy. The Romford Recorder newspaper, the issue dated some two weeks after Alison's disappearance, contained coverage of a press conference held at Romford Police Station, in which a distraught Father Kenneth showed the extent of the strain and repeated this, telling the assembled reporters, If anyone is holding her, why? Why are they holding her? Please let her go. She's done no harm to anybody. If Alison hears or reads this, then I would say, Please come home straight away. If you're frightened to come home, then don't be. If she walks through the door now, the police would not take any action against her. He described how upset and shaken he and Alison's family were, and then once again puzzled out loud at the unlikely scenario that she'd run away, reiterating once again what a happy home and a happy life Alison had, saying, We can't give up hope. That's all we have. Hope. Now it's something else we've discussed many times here on The Enthusiast, isn't it? 
How must the family feel of someone missing, almost certainly having come to harm? Heartbreaking, my heart always goes out to the families who speak like this. For what they're going through is just, it must just be, it's just unimaginable, isn't it? eh? And you see the haunted and shattered look on their faces. And the words of Kenneth Day really do come home and ring true. Because how do you give up hope? How must even considering the alternative be? Sadly though, it was the alternative that Alison's family, her loved ones and friends were forced to face when on the morning of Wednesday the 15th of January 1986, police divers recovered the body of a young woman nine feet down in water near the east bank of the River Lee, some 200 yards south of the Eastway Bridge and only a couple of hundred yards from Fairway Graphics. It could only be one person, and even though the body had spent 17 days in the water, it was readily identifiable as Alison Day. The clothing, the torn blouse and jeans, matched the description of the clothing Alison had been wearing, although her shoes and coat were not found with the body. And alongside the distinctive gold Seiko watch she wore, which was still on her wrist, the jewellery that she'd been described as wearing in the missing persons description that was issued to the press was still around her neck. But unlikely as this was to be, one look at the body confirmed that this had been no tragic accident. Alison had not stumbled into the river while she was lost in the darkness and drowned. Her hands were trussed behind her, severed pieces of her own tartan blouse tied around the wrists and thumbs, and a ligature complete with a piece of wood entangled in it, remained around her neck. Some 200 yards further along the River Lee, a Royal Navy training exercise that was underway, coincidentally at the same time as police divers were recovering Allison's body, soon discovered and removed a coat from near the Eastway Bridge that was ultimately identified as Allison's. The handwritten directions that she'd taken over the telephone from Paul 17 days before, were also found in the inside pocket, further cementing the coat as belonging to Alison. Two large granite bricks were found in the pockets, weighing it down. It took some two days for the coat to be sufficiently dry for a forensic examination of it to take place at the police forensic laboratory in Lambeth, and when it was, the item was then taped for fibre evidence. Examining forensic scientist Dr Geoffrey Rowe found that the mud and conditioning from the river water the item had lain in was making examination of it difficult, yet not impossible, and some five sets of alien fibres were ultimately able to be lifted from the garment and retained as forensic evidence. There was little forensic evidence, however, that could be removed from Allison's body itself. 17 days in the filthy water had all but eliminated any defined evidence that could be obtained, and whilst the post-mortem certified that some sexual interference had indeed taken place, it was impossible to prove that rape had occurred. But examining pathologist Dr Peter Venizis was able to discover not only that Allison's cause of death had been strangulation with a ligature, but the unusual method of a tourniquet a method known as a Spanish windlass had been used to tighten it. 
I do believe that John Wayne Gacy possibly used a similar method during several of his murders, and how his choice of implement to tighten the noose was a simple table fork. But in this case, a piece of alderberry wood had been used as the winch to afford this. Dr. Venesis also noted that a knot had been tied at the front of the ligature that would not only tighten it further, but would also press into the voice box, thus rendering someone not only dying horrifically and painfully, but dying almost silently, unable to cry out. It's a different level of evil, that. Absolute horror indeed, isn't it? And you don't stumble across a method of killing such as that by accident, do you? It's extremely specific learned behaviour, that is. And police at that moment speculated that their killer, for there was nothing at this stage to suggest to them that they were dealing with two killers, possibly had an armed forces background, or a vested interest, perhaps experience, in one or several of the martial arts. But that was just one of three possible theories about the very specific method of strangulation that police had as working theories at the time. For aside from the martial arts background as a possibility, there was also the fact that at one time a tourniquet was taught as a primary mode of first aid, although today it's only recommended as an additional option when direct pressure to a wound is not possible or proves ineffective to staunch blood loss. Which didn't really narrow down the field any for the investigative team. But another option that they were to consider was that a variant of the tourniquet was also taught and used in carpentry, specifically to hold pieces of glued wood in place while they were setting. Sometime later, police were to realise just how on the right lines they'd been with two of these theories. Now, Alison's gold Seiko watch was found to have stopped at 8.10pm. It had not stopped of its own volition, having slowed down through neglect as it was found to be almost fully wound, and tests on an identical model that was supplied to police by the manufacturers revealed that it would stop immediately when it was placed into water, so police could now be certain that she'd been placed into the river at this time. They were not to know until many years later that this wasn't her time of death, however, but that she'd either fallen or was pushed in once already while she was still alive, and it had stopped then. But 8.10pm, that's almost an hour from when she would have gotten off the train at that lonely station, leaving police to shudder at the ordeal she must have then been subjected to during that time. And tragically, at around the same time that she was, her boyfriend must have been searching around the area for her when she hadn't arrived at Fairway Graphics at the expected time. He may have been within a few yards of her. He may even have passed the river moments after Alison had been dumped in there, just after her killer had fled. The funeral of Alison Jane Day, a packed service attended by more than a 100 people, including members of the investigating team, was held at St Andrew's Church on the High Street in Hornchurch and was conducted by the Reverend David Rossdale, the former curate of St Lawrence's Church in Upminster, the very place where Alison had spent so many happy years in the Brownies there. In an address of comfort towards Ken and Barbara Day and a devastated Paul Tidyman sat together in the front pew, 
the Reverend Rossdale said, There are no easy words today, no quick catchphrase we can use to ease our minds as we come together in great sorrow. Ken and Barbara, your family has been caught up in the evil that exists today in the world. Let us pray that those who perpetrated this evil are quickly brought to account. Trying whatever they could to make these words come true, the inquiry team soon turned to a still arguably fledgling Crime Watch UK to help them. I say arguably fledgling because it had only begun airing in June 1984, but back then it was proper Crime Watch, terrifying, memorable and effective. And in the February 1986 edition, which aired on Thursday the 27th of February, and a link to which will be in the episode show notes of course, a reconstruction of Alison's last known movements was the lead item on the show. It detailed Alison leaving her home in Upminster, her journey onto Stratford, and a recreation of the conversation with Rose Lee, and then her heading onwards towards the platform for the North London Line train that would take her onto Hackney Wick. To the last hour of her life. So during the appeal, the main theories that police were working on were as follows. Firstly, that Alison had been followed from when she got off the train at Hackney Wick, and perhaps sensing she'd been followed, it was indeed her who had contacted the taxi company, the phone going dead signalling the time that she was abducted by her killer. The time of the telephone call, 7.13pm, would also have been around the exact time Alison would have arrived off the train as it was confirmed by police that that particular service on the evening of 29th of December had been running bang on time. But the problem with this theory would be, why then did she not instead contact police, or her family, or even Paul's work, instead of a taxi? Why would she then want to go right from near where she knew she wanted to be, further away, into Hackney? And if she'd had to borrow £2 from her mother for her fares to get to Hackney Wick, then how would she have paid for this taxi? Would she have had enough money left over for it? Food for thought, eh? It has never been established if this was Alison that had called or not, but no one else was forthcoming to admit that this had been them, despite a widespread police appeal. The second theory the reconstruction offered was that Alison had gotten off the train, had left the station and made it on foot down to either Wallace Road or White Post Lane depending on which platform at Hackney Wick that she delighted the train on. Either way, Wallace Road was her intended direction, and it was only a short distance northwards up this road, where Wallace Road eventually meets a junction with Berkshire Road that Fairway Graphics was located at. But perhaps Alison, who remember, had never been to the area before to visit her fiancé at work, and possibly following the directions he'd given her, which would have instructed her to walk up Wallace Road to Berkshire Road, she became confused because Wallace Road continues on from this junction and bends around to the right. Now noted here was that at the time, Wallace Road culminated at a printer's yard, which was a favoured haunt of local CD oddballs, who would look around in the bins there overnight for discarded proofs of jazz mags that the company printed. Not the ideal setting for a vulnerable looking, slightly lost young woman to find herself in really that is it, coming face to face with someone who had sex on their mind right at that moment. Had she met a killer here? 
just past this printer's yard, Wallace Road, and I'm sure that the topography of the area has changed drastically over the years, but at the time had a footpath that also led down to the River Lee navigation system. There today remains access to it from here. The third theory police had was similar to this second theory, but in this scenario, Alison had successfully followed the directions Paul had given her and had arrived at his workplace, but upon arriving at Fairway Graphics, possibly became confused as to where the correct entrance to the premises was, as she would have met a sign saying Atlas Works, which she reportedly knew was another name for Fairway Graphics, but may have confused her about where the entrance to the building exactly was. Instead of heading through the front door, she had instead made her way around to the side of the building, which again bordered a path that led onto the River Lee. Whichever of these theories was correct, Detective Superintendent Eric Brown then told the watching public that Allison had only minutes after getting off the train met her killer, who had abducted and then subjected her to a lengthy ordeal of sexual assault before strangling her. But no details of the specific method of this were given, as though although you'd think this would have been an important line of appeal that police wanted to get across to the wider public, they also always do keep something back so that they can test the validity of any possible subsequent confessions from people, because there are always the odd couple of wingnuts who confess to things like this at random, aren't they? He also revealed the police theory that Allison had gone into the water at 8.10pm, due to the stopped watch, and then made an appeal for anyone in the vicinity of the Trowbridge estate, the industrial estate nearby to the scene where Allison was discovered, on the night of the murder, who'd heard any screams, or possibly a splash, to come forward. Alison's coat, which had been recovered from the river some distance from her body, near to where it had been dumped by the Eastway Bridge, was also shown on the programme, as were a replica pair of the leather pink and white shoes that she'd worn that were still missing, and appeals were made for anyone who may have heard the coat being thrown into the river, or had discovered a pair of shoes similar to those shown abandoned somewhere to get in touch with police. An appeal was also made for any women who may have been attacked in similar circumstances, not just at Hackney Wick Station, but in the surrounding areas as well, in the preceding four to five years, to come forward. Now the Crime Watch reconstruction did bring several calls into both the studio and the incident room, although the crux of these were merely confirmed sightings of Alison travelling by bus and train on her journey to Stratford not the key final part of her final journey that police were hoping for. But some 38 women did contact the programme in response to the appeal for those previously attacked in the area since the start of the 1980s, and some of these were now reporting the crimes for the first time. As I said in the previous episode, rape statistics are always horrific enough because just one rape is one too many. But there is also the very real fear that the statistics are often inaccurate because there are many that go unreported, out of fear of reprisal or not being believed even, out of misplaced shame, for whatever reason, and it's a real terrible thought that is. It was shortly after the Crime Watch appeal had aired that Detective Superintendent Eric Brown was replaced in overall command of the inquiry by Detective Superintendent Charlie Farquhar 
whose son Simon went on to research and write not just the only book to date that I'm aware of solely concerning the case I'm bringing to you in the thriller arc, but what surely will always be the definitive book. It's been an absolute goldmine to use in creating the episodes, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's well worth a read. The inquiry was moved then, back from Hackney where it had been moved to, back to Romford Police Headquarters, and a new publicity drive was organised. Although I must say, press reports concerning the inquiry are few and far between, I found while researching. A full appeal was also made on the ITV show Police 5, at the time a long-running five-minute crime appeal show that was hosted on the ITV network, a precursor to Crime Watch, if you like, where Detective Superintendent Farquhar retraced Allison's final steps on foot with the show's presenter, Shaw Taylor. But all of this still yielded no further results, no further witnesses were forthcoming, and aside from the many unsolved rape cases that had been collated as a result the police were now scrutinising, including the unreported ones that had now come to light as a result of the Crime Watch appeal, and including several that had occurred over the previous three years, mainly in the North London area, hoping that some slight detail or clue from these might open up a new line of inquiry, the only solid evidence police had was the unusual tourniquet that had strangled Alison and the fibre tapings that had been collected from items of her clothing. The inquiry was in danger of being wound down at this stage and Alison's tragic case lumped into the old active with regular reviews pile. Manpower is also needed elsewhere as crime never waits in line, does it? but the tenacity of Detective Superintendent Farquhar kept it open, with him quite bluntly telling his superiors, I quote, You can close it down, you do that, but you can be the one that tells Mr and Mrs Day that. I like straight talking people, and from the account given by his son, Charles Farquhar was one of these. By all accounts a blunt, yet compassionate man who died just a few years ago now. There is a quote given from his first meeting with Kenneth and Barbara Day after he had taken over the investigation that has stayed with me that I think sums the man up. He offered them assurance, but he realistically told them, We will do everything in our power to catch whoever did this, but there's one thing I can't do, and that's give you your daughter back. you got to love a copper like that, haven't you? Straight talking, the kind of boss you would want to go that extra mile for. I had a warrant officer when I was in the Air Force who was exactly like that. He is still today the scariest person I've ever come across. He was proper terrifying if he was on one, believe me. But he was also the very best boss that I've ever had. He could crush you with words, but he could also lift you to the clouds with them. Absolute legend. So, however disheartened the inquiry team may have been when line after line of inquiry had been taken as far as it could possibly go, or manpower was reduced for whatever reason, Charles Farquhar was the type of person who could get his team to go just that bit more. He directed them to focus upon the scores of unsolved sexual assaults across the London area. He and they convinced that the killer of Alison Day would have to have offended before having a steeped history of sexual offending that had ultimately built up to murder, and a clue to his identity may just be amongst those cases somewhere. But as they searched, there couldn't have been a detective on the squad hunting Allison's killer, who would at that time realise the shape, the size, 
and the scale that the investigation would go on to take. For Operation Lee was to ultimately become part of the biggest police inquiry since the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry five years before. Which needs no introduction whatsoever, does it? And what a shamble of bollocks that ended up as. They also couldn't imagine exactly what that investigation would utilise to result in it coming to a conclusion, and just how long that conclusion, the proper closure to it, would be in coming. Now, it was to be several years before a picture of what exactly had happened to Alison was to emerge, which can be best described as follows. The taller man had long earmarked Hackneywick Station as the perfect place for him and his odious shorter companion to strike. The wasteland and industrial premises surrounding it that offered plenty of isolated spots to hide in, to ambush and to attack lone women. The poor lighting and the general desertedness of the place appealing greatly for the nefarious purposes that he and the shorter man had in mind. It was also some way removed from the areas of London that the pair had usually struck in, and perhaps with a shorter man being pulled in to take part in an identity parade for a rape less than three weeks previously, it was consensually felt to move the hunting ground somewhat, perhaps feeling it was getting a bit hot in the North London areas that the two were so familiar with. So early that Sunday evening, the 29th of December 1985, the taller man had telephoned the shorter one at his parents' home, where he was then living, and simply said to him, Let's go hunting. About an hour later, the two were stood concealed in the darkness of the opposite platform of Hackneywick Station, watching as an attractive blonde young woman got off the three-coach North London Line train just a few minutes after 7pm, most likely being the only passenger on it, and then stood, as clear as day a stranger to the area, trying to get her bearings in an unfamiliar setting to her. Like the predators that they were, without even needing to speak, two bodies with one brain remember, they had manoeuvred silently into a position to strike. As Alison had begun to descend the steps that would lead down to the road from the footbridge, one of the men, it isn't clear if it was the taller or the shorter one, ran up past her, and then doubled back to grab her from behind, in their by this time well-practised and polished manner. Though due to the holiday season and desertedness of Hackney Wick at the time meaning there was no one about to hear, Alison most likely screamed and struggled with her attacker, until the other one appeared, and the threat of the knife and the promise that she would not be harmed if she kept quiet, all but subduing her, through pure fear. Alison was then walked at knife point down away from the footbridge in the direction of the River Lee, where she was walked across live tracks and then down underneath the railway bridge there. Some sources that I use for research claim that Alison was taken to a set of dingy lock-up garages that stood nearby at the time, whilst others make no mention of this, and as we're talking some 35 plus years ago now, and the topography of the area has indeed changed dramatically, it's impossible to pinpoint any likely spot where this may have been. Indeed, it makes pinpointing the exact spot where subsequent events were to happen virtually impossible, as it's changed beyond all recognition today. But wherever it was to occur, and the rough area can be gleaned through a bit of Google Street View interpretation and backwards deduction through other sources, the horror that was all too familiar to come from this pair was then inflicted upon Alison. At knife point, she was stripped, 
and then raped by both the men in their usual pattern, one keeping guard as the other attacked Alison, and as usual, the shorter man asking her a name and address as he was assaulting her. Hearing approaching footsteps, the shorter man told her to freeze and to say nothing, threatening her with the knife as a terrifying reminder to stay silent as a man approached from the path on the opposite side of the river. However, this potential saviour appeared not to notice them in the darkness and walked on by. This man was never traced. When both the taller and the shorter man had raped Alison, they then threw her clothes back to her, told her to dress, and told her that they were escorting her back to the other side of the river, with the shorter man leading the way. But the taller man, as we established in the latter part of the opening episode, the one who was the more violent of the two, the more cruel, wasn't satisfied with the horror and degradation that they'd just inflicted upon Alison, had no consideration of just how he and his shorter friend had just changed her life forever, and instead of letting the terrified girl walk over the footbridge as he was, in between him and his partner, he instead forced her for what could have been nothing more than his twisted amusement to walk along the narrow ledge on the outside of the parapet, a perilous journey that she would have had to make by inching her way across, with her back flat against the iron, relying on balance alone, as the bridge was too high for her to hold the top of the parapet to assist her in crossing. It was sure fire what was going to happen on that frosty narrow iron platform, and halfway across, sure enough, either accidentally or perhaps even deliberately pushed in for amusement, Alison lost her footing and fell into the river, at once screaming in terror because she now had a new fear, that of drowning because she couldn't swim. Yes, indeed, there are no words, are there? Like the poor woman hadn't had enough fear to go on with. With some effort, Alison did manage to struggle to the edge of the river, and the shorter man, who had made it down there seconds after she'd fallen in, reached down and pulled her out, and the moment that she was back on the bank, Alison broke away and she sprinted for her life away down towards Eastway Bridge, some 200 yards away. Now it was much later to be established that the shorter man's initial reaction to this was to flee in the opposite direction as their victim, flight kicking in, but the taller man, watching from the top of the bridge, was having none of it. Disobedience, as we said previously, from any victims tended to enrage him, and he screamed at his companion, addressing him unusually by his Christian name. Get the fucking bitch, get her! The shorter man did as he was told, and pursuing the terrified girl, caught up with her and held her by the scruff of the neck, moments later being joined by the enraged taller man. Roughly handling Alison to a nearby patch of wasteland, he tore off his sodden jeans and raped her once again, then dragged her to her feet and reportedly marched her across to a nearby plain field. Again, various sources describe this differently, and it's a location that cannot be pinpointed exactly anyway due to area development over the 35 years that have passed since these events. Once here, however, an isolated location as favoured by the pair, Alison was possibly beaten by the taller man, then had three strips of material cut from the tartan blouse that she'd been wearing. A crude gag was made from one piece and forced into her mouth, 
Then Alison's hands and thumbs were tied behind her back in the signature praying position of the two with another. The third piece, however, was twisted to thicken it into a ligature. A knot was tied in the middle of it, and then this was fastened around her neck with a knot against a windpipe, with a stick, and as I said before, one reliable source claims it to be a four-inch piece of alderberry wood, grabbed from nearby, being fed through a knotted loop at the rear beforehand, creating a strangulation device known as a Spanish windlass. Now it's already been horrific researching this case as it is, and what I've described here over the past few minutes, I've done so in a somewhat sanitised manner. It's not something I take pleasure in describing such foul acts. But as ever, I won't for a second hide the horror of what we're talking about here, though I'm sure you're already of the opinion by now that this is a pair of beasts that we are talking about. But by doing so, going right down the rabbit hole as I do, and the time it takes to write and research tales such as this, I'm proper struck with the horror of what the victims must have faced, I dare say more than some of you folks are, and writing about the construction of the ligature, and there is a picture of it on the show's Instagram page for you to see, and that moment, having been through such a horrific ordeal already, well, I don't even really want to try and imagine the terror that that poor young woman must have felt at that moment when the ligature was placed around her neck, for it's surely impossible to. The taller man, as we've said, the crueler one, the more violent one, the dominant one, then told his shorter friend, we're in it together, we've got to do this together, and beckoned for him to come over and take his turn, have his go, for as he said this to him, the taller man was already twisting the stick clockwise at the same time, increasing the restriction on the girl's throat. The shorter man then came and took over, turning the stick a number of times himself, before the taller one took over once again. Within a few moments, because such a device surely doesn't take long to kill a person, Alison Jane Day, 19-year-old solicitor's clerk, engaged, happy, and just only a few hundred yards away from her boyfriend's workplace, who by that time was also anxiously looking out for her when she hadn't arrived as expected, was dead, raped and murdered. Two hours before, she'd just finished Sunday dinner with her family. That's the real stuff of nightmares, eh? Once satisfied that Alison was dead then, the two men then dragged Alison across to the edge of the river and rolled her body in, her hands still trussed behind her and the wicked-looking ligature still wrapped tightly around her throat. Filling the pockets of the sheepskin coat she'd been wearing with heavy stones, they then fastened it and it was thrown into the river some yards further upstream. They then separated and each made their way back using a different route to where they'd left their vehicle before driving back to their home area of North London. On the way back, the two men discussed what had just happened, with the taller of the two, somewhat excited, proper fired up, justifying their actions to his rather more concerned partner in crime, that they would be facing an attempted murder charge and all of the years imprisonment that that would bring anyway, had they let her live, and so the killing was necessary, I quote, it was the right thing to do. Yes, you believe that shit, justifying their actions, the right thing to do. Monstrous, you couldn't make it up, could you? 
All talk after that throughout the journey back to North London was used to establish alibis for the evening, should they ever need them of course, they thought. The taller man went back to spend the evening with his young children, whom he dropped off at relatives, while the shorter man reverted to his original plan for the evening and went to a social function to enjoy a few drinks, mingling with crowds of people all ready to wish him the best for the upcoming year. Across London, without a shadow of mercy or remorse, he and his taller friend had just made sure that a 19-year-old girl would never get to see it, because it was the right thing to do. And there was much more horror to come yet, which I shall continue bringing you in the third part of the thriller arc, which is coming in just a couple of days. I know this has been harrowing listening, I really do, and I've not meant any disrespect to Alison's family or her memory in how I've described the case. I remain very sensitive and mindful towards it. But you know me, and I also don't shy away from things here, and I want ultimately you guys to feel the same as I do about taller and shorter. So I describe as best as I can, and I hope that it does this. I will be so glad when I can name them, I tell you. But that's a bit of ways off yet, and in the meantime then, part 4 won't write itself. Yes, the next part is done already and almost ready to go. So like milk that's been left out of the fridge for days, I'm off and I'm heading to crack on with that. I thank you so kindly all for joining me here today, and should you wish to discuss Alison's story, then there's an episode thread up in the show's Facebook discussion group for you to do so. Though I ask if you do, and you already know the case, then please try and keep it spoiler free eh, there is a reason I write this in the style that I have. Or you can get in touch through any of the show's social media links, it's always good to talk wherever with you guys. With that then, I'm wrapping up here, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Stay safe, thanks very much again for joining me, and goodbye for now.